and welcome to the sixth episode of the War Films podcast, where we're discussing ten classic war films. This episode, we are going away from World War Two, which has been, well, I think the majority of yeah. the films we've done so far. You know, one Vietnam, one First World War. Yes, we? most of them are World War Two, but this time we're going back into the 19th century for one of Queen Victoria's colonial wars uh, into South Africa in 1879 with the film Zulu. Um, I'm Garen Ewing, I'm a comic artist and writer and illustrator, and I'm doing these podcasts with my brother Murray Ewing. Hello, I'm Murray. Um, I'm a writer, I've got a book out at the moment called The Fantasy Reader. Um, I also did the music for this podcast. So, Zulu, have you seen this film before? I must have. <laughs> yes. apparently, apparently it's one of those classic Christmas time films. <laughs> yes. But I think I have seen it before, but I don't... I think this is the first time I, I sat down and watched it with intention. You know? Right, yes, yes. I think I'm the same. I've seen it quite a few times before, but particularly, as I've mentioned on our podcasts uh, a few times, <laughs> mm. um, one of my, what I might call my specialist subjects, if I had to go on Mastermind, it might be one of my specialist <laughs> subjects was the Second Anglo-Afghan War, which took place between 1878 and 1880, so in exactly the same time period. And because of that, I was interested in seeing the film Zulu as well, because that's set in the same period, although a different continent, of course. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it was uh, released in 1964. Yes. Although apparently research for the film started in the late 1950s. Um, it all started with John Preble, who's a historian... Uh, wrote an article. He'd been writing articles about bravery in military situations. Yes. His wife suggested he look at uh, the list of uh, Victoria Crosses awarded oh, right. as um, ideas, and he saw that 11 had been awarded at Rourke's Drift, which is the subject of Zulu. So he wrote an article on that. Um, it was called Slaughter in the Sun. Oh, right. <laughs> in, uh, and that was 1958. Um, a US um, director called Cy Enfield read it, and he bought the rights, basically. Okay. Basically, he and um, John Preble collaborated on the script from right. that point on. Yeah. Should we talk about Cy Enfield? Yes. Yeah, well, as the film sort of starts with him, yeah. I suppose, uh, as the originator. Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. So he worked um, with Orson Welles. He's an American, I don't know if I said that. Yeah. He worked with Orson Welles, and of course that ended when Orson Welles himself had trouble with the studios. Um, then Seinfeld was blacklisted because he was a communist, so he couldn't find work in America. <laughs> right. Well, was he actually a communist or just... Uh, that's the point. I think uh, I think they said he was a communist. But, okay. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, communist sympathiser or what, yeah, what, yeah. what counted as... Yeah, the, which probably wasn't, you know, if you were left-handed, you were probably a communist <laughs> sympathiser <laughs> um, under McCarthy's view. <laughs> uh, so obviously, I guess that's why he ended up in um, England or over here, yes. looking to finance a film. So he got in, he he was trying to find finance, and he came into contact with Stanley Baker, uh, who's an actor. We covered him in The Guns of Navarone. He was uh, head of yes, he that. played Butcher Brown, the knife yes. expert, didn't he? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> slightly psychotic member of the team and that was 1961 and i think it was there that i don't know if they came into contact then or around then but stanley baker wanted to move into production as well as being a star actor at the time and so he he read the script which they prepared and he started getting contacts getting people to finance it right uh cy enfield he did a tarzan film oh, right. uh, in 1952 tarzan's savage fury um, which I, may have been his last film in the States, actually, because that was 52 and he moved to the UK in 53. All oh, right. And in 1961, the year you just mentioned, he made Mysterious Island, uh, the Ray 
Harryhausen film. Right, yeah. yeah. Which is fantastic, uh, based on... Jules Jules Verne, yes. So Stanley Baker is really... He was a driving force behind He was a driving force, and also his profile, along with Michael Caine, was probably the the most raised by this film. Oh, right. Zulu Zulu was enormously successful. It was Michael Caine's first kind of starring role in a film. And um, now Stanley Baker, he'd been in uh, quite a number of films by then. Richard III, uh, Hell Drivers in 57, which was... Directed by Cy Enfield, so oh, right. um, that was that was Stanley Baker's first lead role. Uh, I think Cy Enfield and Baker made six films together, so, oh. so quite a number. Yeah. I'd say also in 1961, that that year, <laughs> um, he made that's when he made The Guns of Navarone, which was our first film yeah. in the War Films podcast. So if you want to go and look at our archive, you'll see our discussion of that film. And I think we talked about Stanley Baker had turned down the role of James Bond for the first yes. you know, Doctor No. Yeah. Uh, so you were saying about Joseph Levine was the finance... Oh, yes, yeah, I remember there was... I couldn't remember the name, but there was basically one finance. Well, he was a big Hollywood yeah. you know, mogul, wasn't he? I, I think he said he, he thought the budget should be about £2.6 which was quite low for the time. Right. But he said if you can get it below £2 million, then you can basically start straight away. <laughs> right. Uh, which they did. Okay. Um which is amazing because I don't think it looks at all like a low-budget film, apart from the fact that no. it's um, it's all in one basic location. Yes, yeah. Although it is, it, it's in South Africa. Yeah, I presume it was filmed in. It's filmed in Natal, was it? Yeah, Natal. Yeah, and so in South Africa. pretty much on location. Probably not the exact location, yeah. I'm sure. But but there are a few things like some of the actors, like the bloke who plays um, Henry Hook. He is only James see, Booth. Yes, he. he He's only seen in interiors, basically. So he wasn't shipped out to South oh, Africa. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I didn't even was, notice that. Yeah, no, you don't notice it until, until you're told, really. Yeah. But so, you know, that's like um, they save money by not having to take him out. Oh, that's, you know? a, that's amazing. I didn't <laughs> notice that he wasn't... So he was... Was he never outside at all? Or? There's one shot where he's on, on the roll call at the end... But because it's under... Oh, yes, it's un- yeah. he's sitting under the awning of yes, the... Yes, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so you wouldn't notice it. Right. But, um, yeah, so... Ah, oh, the magic of filmmaking. <laughs> and also they did things like, they worked out that if a Zulu costume, if they bought it in England, would cost about £300. Mm. So they basically got the Zulus to make their own costumes. Oh, yeah. what a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Authenticity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Authenticity. They did use actual rifles. You know the actual Henry Martini yeah. rifles. Yeah. Martini Henry rifles. Martini Henry. Sorry. Yeah, and uh, another bit of authenticity is King Ketchweo. Yeah, was played by Chief Butalazi. Yes, Chief Butalazi, who was the great grandson of uh, Ketchweo. Yeah, and I mean he wasn't an actor. Mm. He was a politician uh, in South Africa. He was the chief of the Buthalese tribe. He was the leader of the KwaZulu Territory. He founded the Inkatha Freedom Party in 1975 and in the first post-apartheid government in 1994, he was the Minister of Home Affairs in South Africa. So his Wikipedia page is long and and detailed, uh, a fascinating Mm. character in in the history of South Africa in, you know, recent formative years. yeah. Apparently his mother was um, quite a historian of Zulu culture. Oh, right. And things like uh, the music, you know, she provided um, recordings of authentic Zulu music, oh, wow. which um, I guess we'll talk about the, the um, soundtrack somewhere, but John Barry used actual Zulu music as a yes. basis for his soundtrack. I didn't look into the music at all on this, no. but it was notably mm. good. In fact, I think 
um, on one of the extras of the DVD, they said that the sound, <laughs> the score, the um, soundtrack, album. soundtrack made almost as much as the film itself yeah. because it was so popular. Of course, at the time in 1964, if you really liked a film, the only way you had to um, sort of take it home with you, you could buy a novelization or the soundtrack. Yes, I think I've heard Mark Como That's say true, this about yeah. a lot. You know, he'd take home, he'd buy the soundtrack and sort of sit there reimagining the film yeah. to the music. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, but the the basic theme of Zulu film is based on a rhythm taken from Zulu music. Oh, right. You know, it's just got good. that sort of thumping rhythm. Yeah. So um, uh, the other the other main character is Michael Caine. Yes. Uh, as we said, in his, kind of his first major role. Yeah. And really, after that, he just went from star to star, didn't he? Um, yeah. Because he was followed by The Ipocris File and Alfie and The Italian Job and Get Carter. Yeah. And, of course, he's been in, we discussed The Man Who Would Be King. Yes, yeah. Which was 1975. <laughs> that was in our Adventure Films podcast, which you can also listen to in our archive. And... The year after that, he was in The Eagle Has Landed, which I think is the next film we're discussing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and he was in the year after that, so three consecutive years, 1977, he was in A Bridge Too Far, which we talked about two yes, episodes yeah, ago. Yes, yeah, So Michael Caine, uh, a, bit of a, a bit of a glut of Michael Caine there. Yeah, that was, yeah, it was his breakthrough role. And originally, apparently, he was thought of as being considered for private hook right now a lot of the cast were cast because they were friends of uh, stanley baker which isn't to say it's nepotism yeah i mean part of the way they they got the film well, that's done the under budget yeah yeah not well. nepotism isn't it that's that's family um <laughs> he needed reliable actors they yeah. didn't want to waste money on mm. people they didn't know kane was a, a sort of rising star actor yeah. but he hadn't had a major film role and after this he really became known as a working class actor i mean that's what he is yes he, and I think it was him who says that the reason he was cast as upper class is because Seinfeld, as an American, didn't know that it tended to be then that if you were upper class, you were cast in upper class roles, yeah. and if you were lower class, you were so cast you in... So you didn't really yeah. know the class system yeah. that we have. Yeah. So, I mean, here he's playing very much against type, really. Yes, um, it is funny. When you see Michael Caine, yeah. you're expecting, you know... Yeah, oh, a cockney accent. Blame the bloody doors <laughs> off or whatever. Don't you point that bloody spear at me. Hang on. Well, is that is that an actual line? Did I just no, make that I up? No, I think that's, a, that's a comedy... Because that sounds like it on. should come from Zulu, but yeah. of course, when you hear him talk, he's, yeah. hello, old chap. In fact, he says, chin-chin, yeah. at one point, doesn't he? He's absolutely... Uh, aristocratic and he's good he's good actually you get used mm. to it quite quickly but at first when you know michael kane from you know alfie and yeah. and all the other stuff it's a slight shock yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes we've had we've had quite a few michael kane and our next film is michael kane as well mm. michael kane has actually been in a film with stanley baker in 1956 oh that was kane's first film actually yeah wasn't he a minor part or something right yeah. uh, a hill in korea it was called which i guess was a korean mm, right. war yeah. film it's about that period one major name in this film, of course, is Richard Burton. You never see. He yes. Does, he does the voiceover <clears throat> at the beginning and the end. Yeah, I didn't recognise his voice rather badly, yeah. but, I mean, it's obviously very recognisable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, him... Stanley Baker was Welsh, and yeah. that's one of the reasons he chose this script. He liked it, because it's about a Welsh regiment, or a, yeah. a regiment that's based in Wales and uh, mostly made out of Welsh, yes. Welsh people. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the actors, you know, like uh, Richard Burton was brought in you know, partly as a favour. I mean, obviously he's paid, but, mm. um, you know, because it was boosted by the idea of um, the Welsh idea. Yeah, I think historically, though, they didn't become a Welsh 
suddenly a named Welsh regiment. I don't yeah. think until 1881 that where, where all the changes, regimental changes came in, but were they a Warwickshire? Oh, right. The Warwickshire Regiment before them. I mean, they're all named. They're the 24th foot Yeah. Um, before 1881. Yeah, certainly I read that, I mean, they're presented as being basically Welsh. Yeah. Because they've got a... a they have a large uh, contingent of Welsh Yeah, uh, and they sing privates. The Men of Harwick, which is a Welsh song, uh, which wasn't the regimental song at the time. And right. they weren't that... It wasn't predominantly Welsh, apparently. In but the you actual... could imagine the, the, the Welsh men in the regiment might have sang that anyway. I mean, yeah. it did become the regimental song, yeah. and, and I presume it doesn't come out of nowhere. Yeah. I, mean, I, should, I should say, by the way, um, uh, me having an interest in the Anglo-Afghan War, I've kind of shunned the Zulu War, because it's kind of the rival. <laughs> there's possibly a bit of jealousy from people who prefer the Anglo... who are into the Anglo-Afghan War, of, of which there aren't many... Because, for instance, when you go to the National Army Museum, or certainly the last time I went, a couple of, three years ago or so, you know, you look for books that are in your interest, mine being the Afghan war, you will find nothing. You know, any bookshop, there's nothing. There there are probably more now. When I started studying Mm. the Afghan war, there was absolutely nothing around. It was, people hardly knew about it. Of course, then we went into Afghanistan in, um, you know, 2001 or two, I don't know how early we went, I can't remember. And... Even then, actually, there wasn't that much interest until mm. about later in the 2000s, when, and more books have come out. So you probably you might be able to find a couple now. But predominantly, it was Zulu War. Zulu War, Zulu War, Zulu, if you know, the really? 1870s, 1880s, <laughs> Zulu. There are so many books. I go online, trying to find Afghan War stuff. Again, there's a bit more now. Um, I've got my own website on the Afghan War, actually. But you'd find, looking for 1879, you'd find Zulu everywhere. There's forums, yeah. there's groups... And it, yeah. and I, being interested in that era, I would look into them mm. with some jealousy of the discussions <laughs> going on about all the the sort of details, um, but also the arguments. So, you know, I met, I don't know, I haven't looked at them for a while, but I do remember some you know twenty four page forum thread about ammunition boxes at Sandal <laughs> One at that kind of level. <laughs> Which has made me slightly nervous about doing this film because I'm yeah. aware of the passion and... And the level of information. That, yes, yeah. the, the level of knowledge that some people have about the Zulu War. And I just don't have... You know, <laughs> I, I've kind of avoided it because it's my rival. <laughs> Which is a silly way. It's not, it's not. Yeah. I'm interested in it as well. But you get into being into this... I'm sort of into the India-Afghanistan border. Mm. And this is Africa, a completely different thing. But... Very interesting, nonetheless. And I also have a, a friend, who, a comic creator friend, Colin Matheson, who I think one of his earliest, if not his first comic, maybe, I'm not sure, sorry, Colin, um, <laughs> did a really good little two-part comic called Zulu Watercart Rescue about, I think, a real event that took place during the Rorks Drift action of of a couple of soldiers or so going over the fortification to go oh, right. and rescue a water cart that was out in the... Oh, right. Yeah, to bring it back so they had more water. Um, anyway, it's a really good little comic. I, I recommend you look up Colin. And I think he's doing a new version, a coloured, full-colour version of his Zulu comic and perhaps some new pages as well, which I've seen. But anyway, so he yeah. uh, really knows his stuff. He's been <laughs> out to South Africa or, uh, with Ian Knight, who's one of the foremost authors on oh. the Zulu War and Rock's Drift in particular. So I'm, I'm slightly nervous about making mm. any any um, factual claims <laughs> yeah. in this podcast. And to make things worse, um, <laughs> one thing I was listening to the commentary on the film, and a lot of it was, oh, you know, that 
didn't actually happen or yeah. like the characterizations of some of the major characters in the film yes. are completely not like the historical people yeah and yeah. in fact they've said you know oh, oh the family was upset about how he presented this person yeah yeah hook so, especially i mean yeah. I, I just, that's one of the things I'd, I'd read on this forum as well so i already knew that going to yeah. the film that hook's family but of course i mean i don't know how well known it is what his character actually was families are always going to be disappointed with less than stunning i mean he's presented as a malingerer and he's called a, a barrack room barrister or something yeah um someone who was trying to get out of doing you know <laughs> he looks he, like a shirker in the yes, film doesn't yeah, he yeah. he does eventually yeah i mean he wins a vc he, yeah he grabs her and he you know deserves yeah. it from the events in the film rescuing people from the fire and, mm. and all that kind of stuff and yeah so in this <laughs> in this we're basically discussing the film and the story of the film we might yes. occasionally make reference to the we will attempt we will attempt yeah. to stumble over a few historical facts as we go along yeah uh, with with that in mind we'll start talking about the film our usual disclaimer that this contains spoilers it doesn't usually matter because we're usually discussing quite old films but yeah. if you haven't seen it and you you know well, it's an historical <laughs> event, yeah. so you may know what happens. Um, so our two disclaimers, spoilers, and also we're um, quite ignorant about historical <laughs> facts. Uh, but we'll try our best, because they are interesting. Yeah. Um, so the film starts yeah. after the Battle of Isandlwana. Yes. Which was a huge disaster for the British. They had, I think it was... 1,500 British men yep. killed by a highly disciplined attack. By Zulus. Yes, yes. 20,000 Zulus versus 1,800 British. Oh, right. And 1,300 of those British were killed. I mean, that's, you know, almost a wipeout. Yeah. That was the first battle of the Zulu yeah. war. And it didn't go well. <laughs> now, should we say why the British were over there? Because this was... While I was watching the film, I didn't yeah. know this. Yes, it's important, yeah. I guess, the background. So why were um, they there? Well, basically, <laughs> South Africa at the time wasn't a unified nation. There were um, Boers over there, there were Zulus and various other um, people who were actually native to South Africa, and there were British colonies, yep. farmers <clears> and so on. And so um, Victoria sent... Queen Victoria, sorry, I don't want to be familiar. <laughs> Vicky. Vicky. Queen Victoria sent over Sir Bartle Frere, telling him to, to organise South Africa into a nation. He saw the only thing stopping him, really, was the Zulus, who had a standing army of 40,000. Right. And so he, was, he tried to convince um, Queen Victoria, basically, to start the war. And she didn't want to. I think they were concentrating on Afghanistan, or the Russians anyway. Yeah. yeah I mean, but, Afghanistan wasn't a war then. So but, um, the Prime Minister was Disraeli at yes. the time, and he also didn't want to. No. Even though the Tories, of which Disraeli was leader of the Tories, I think that's right... They were basically the hawks of the day. Oh, right. Um, and it was Gladstone, his rival, and they sort of swapped prime minister, you know, um, being prime minister for a, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> a number of years. Else, yeah. They, the liberals, were 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 more wanted, you know, not peace necessarily, but, but they weren't so expansionist. Yes, yeah. exactly. But I think nobody wanted you had the forward policy of Disraeli, and I can't remember the name of of the other one, the. Um, yeah. Yeah, the the live and let live yeah. policy of liberals, and that that was manifested in Afghanistan, mm. where they pretty much manufactured a reason to go to war with the Afghans, who they they didn't want the Russians to have influence over them; they wanted the British to have yeah. influence over them. Yeah, um, and this is pretty much mirrored in South Africa, mm. except I think it's worse. It's difficult to say worse, putting your troops where they're, they're not, you know, yeah. supposed to be, really. They've got no right to be. 
But basically, they didn't want a war in Africa. No. Um, but um, Sir Bartle Frere apparently, apparently exaggerated the Zulu threat. And when he was finally told, no, you're not going to have a war, he forced events by going to Quechuayo and saying and demanding that his army would be disbanded. Yeah. And that's the thing that kicked off the war. He, he was prodding him quite a lot, wasn't yeah. he? He was issuing demands, um, a whole list of things that he knew he wouldn't be able to agree yes, with. Yeah. It wasn't things that he wanted him to sign and then everything would be okay. He was provoking him. He made yeah. them impossible to agree with. And so and I think Quechuayo did quite a lot yeah. to try and keep the peace, yeah. actually. Well, in, in the end, it wasn't Quechuayo who organised... Who, ordered the attack on right. um, on Isandlwana. Isandlwana, yeah. It was his, I think it was his brother-in-law or something. Oh, okay. There was a prince who yeah. actually took took the initiative and made this attack, which basically started the war. I mean, after that many, many people are killed, it's almost, you mm. can't, can't stop a war. Yeah. But in the film, so we start off actually at the royal kraal, um, Quechuayo, overseeing a marriage of... Um, oh, a mass marriage. Yeah, mass marriage. <laughs> The thing that impressed me about this was, even though it was a marriage, it was a wedding between warriors mm. and women, <laughs> yeah. uh, it was showing, sort of like regimentation, it was showing that this these weren't disordered tribes, yes. you know, just part of their everyday life was this um, yeah. extreme organisation. Yes, and uh, witnessing our two you know, unusual faces to yeah. see in this scene, which are a couple of Swedish... Well, a Swedish missionary and his, his daughter. daughter. Yeah. The, the Wits. The Wits, yeah. Jack Hawkins playing the Swedish missionary. I think I know the name, and I guess I know the face. I don't really know the films he was in, but he was a, a leading man of, uh, you know, like the decade before. Yes, in fact, he's been in two films that we've discussed. Oh, has he? Uh, yes. <laughs> well, no, one film that we've discussed already, Lawrence of Arabia. Oh, right. Listen in our archive. And one film we're going to discuss, in fact, it'll be the last of the war films, which is Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, right. There's a couple of interesting links here between Jack Hawkins and Stanley Baker. Yeah. Not pleasant ones. Oh, right. They were both heavy smokers, and they both died of cancer related to that. So with Stanley Baker, he died of lung cancer in 1976. Mm. He was only 48. Yeah. That's pretty much a year older than I am. And Jack Hawkins, who was also a heavy smoker had to have his larynx removed in 1966, so after Zulu. But he continued to act, and his voice was dubbed in. Oh, really? But he died after an operation to fit an artificial voice box in 1973. And just related to that, Sonny Baker played Lieutenant Chard. Mm. Chard was also a heavy smoker, as probably many people were back in those days. Chard died of cancer of the tongue and had to have his tongue removed. Um, and then he died in 1897, age 49, so just a year older than Sandy Baker. So oh. I think <laughs> Sandy Baker felt quite a strong connection to Chard. Yeah. And in fact, he owned his Victoria Cross. Yeah. Um, he bought it uh, thinking it was a cast copy. Yeah. And then, you know, 20 years after his death or so, in, in 1996, it was discovered that it was actually the original VC. VC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, yeah that. Made from the, the canon of the Crimea, was it? Chinese canon used in by Russians in the Crimea. Oh, right. Yeah, that ended up eventually in the collection of Lord Ashcroft, who's got the biggest collection of VCs ever, and I think they're at the Imperial War Museum now. <sighs> anyway, interesting yeah. story. So back to the wits. So they witness, with with slight distaste, <laughs> Yeah, perhaps trying to be culturally interested, uh, but especially his daughter is horrified at yes. this display of flesh and... Um, <laughs> Music, yes. <laughs> rhythm, <laughs> and it's quite a 
fantastic contrast with their you know, buttons mm. done up right to their tops. Yes, and their, despite the heat. Yes, um, you know, their biblical view of the world. And then suddenly here's this nature. Yeah, yeah. Happening. These people who live with nature and it's quite a joyful and very powerful yeah. scene and they can't quite stand it. Yes. <laughs> and then in comes a messenger who tells... Now, what does he say? Is he giving Ketchway the news about Isandalwana? The massacre, yeah. Right, yes. Well, yeah, immediately the wits start to leave and yeah. Otto Witt says there's just been over a thousand British soldiers well, killed. Yes. So they try yeah. to leave. They get into um, their little carriage and one of the um, one of the Zulus stops yes, Margareta Witt yeah. and Ketchway orders him killed yes. just to let them go. Which <laughs> yeah, And uh, there's another... Detail I didn't really notice, but when they when the wagon rolls away, it goes over a bump. Right, and that's the Zulu who was just killed. Oh, really? Yeah, because <laughs> apparently this was something that um, might have upset the senses of the day. I mean, I just thought, oh, it's gone over a bump. That but, wasn't an accident of film. In, no, no, that was. No, um, that's supposed to be taken as oh, they're just running over a dead man. Right. <laughs> Goodness me! Yeah, so they leave and they go to Rock's Drift. Yeah, and I think this is one of the historical inaccuracies because they weren't actually at. Rock's Drift, were they? Apparently it was two days away. Oh, oh you see, the Wits weren't yeah. based... They weren't based at Rock's Drift and they weren't pacifists, apparently. <laughs> no. Um, but did they even go to Rock's Drift? Or was that, or they, are they know. just used as a... Yeah. I mean, it, obviously it's quite a dramatic... Yeah. They have quite an impact mm. um, because they turn up at Rock's Drift and there's... Um, Otto Witt going, you're all going to die! Yeah. And he turns out to be a drunkard, he gets drunk, yeah. and yeah. eventually they're just put on their carriage and told to leave, despite yeah. the fact that they're surrounded by Zulus, just because he's too much trouble. Yeah, they play an important dramatic role in the, in the build-up to the attack. Hmm. But, um, yeah, Rourke's Drift, um, it wasn't filmed at the actual location of Rourke's Drift, because apparently they went there and they said it was basically two hills. <laughs> it right. was quite flat, yeah. whereas they where the place it was this film was filmed is very dramatic mountains and hills yes. and it looks yeah. brilliant it looks brilliantly dramatic but you think you wouldn't really build a hospital there because it's basically in a place that's perfect to be attacked from every direction yeah but, um, i mean rock's drift itself was originally a trading post yes and then was it a mission station yeah i mean it was a hospital as in and this, then it was yeah. being used as a hospital by yeah. the army for their yeah you know, yes. i think it was right on the border of Zululand. Zululand, yeah, yeah, yeah the, so. the, across the river, which yeah. is, we then go to, we go to Rock's Drift and yeah. we meet Lieutenant Chard, yeah. Stanley Baker, who is a Royal Engineer yeah. and has just been sent there to... He was part of the the people who were massacred, but he was sent ahead of them to build, yeah, so he build a bridge. He didn't yeah. know about that, yeah. Yeah, so he's, he basically escaped being killed by yeah. being sent ahead to yeah. build a bridge so that they could cross it. And he's using men of... The men of the Walkshrift garrison, the, the 24th foot. Yeah. And I think historically his engineers had been sent away back to Sandalwana, so they were involved in that, and he was left with the men of the 24th. I don't know, mm. don't know the truth of all of all those yeah. <laughs> men swapping. Um, it's interesting how many of these films feature bridges, isn't it? Yes. I mean, this isn't, isn't a major part of the film, but, you know, we, you know, it's blowing up bridges, building bridges. That's right, <laughs> yes, yeah. Yeah, so the actual man who's in charge of the 24th, who are at um, Rourke's Drift, is Lieutenant Bromhead. Yeah. Who's Michael Caine. Yes. Bromhead is aristocratic. His grandfather is the general, he calls him. Yeah. 
uh, and his father was also um you know high up in the army yeah they they've been at places like uh Quebec you know, Quebec and and Waterloo yeah so he's got that and that's real it's in his blood yeah which uh, is very very a familiar story for officers mm. gentlemen officers yeah whereas Chard has not come through that yeah. sort of familiar uh, he's an engineer way. so you assume that he's educated from you know maybe working class background probably middle class yeah and so he's earned his position rather than being born to it that's the sort of argument between them yeah i mean i don't know about chard but certainly bromhead purchased his commission yeah so when they meet you get that tension tension yeah. between them because bromhead is is immediately lording it over chard yeah Chard has borrowed some of his men. Didn't ask. Yeah. Uh, and Bromhead's well, Brom is out hunting. Yeah, hunting a leopard or something. A cheetah. Cheetah. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And he's he's very much you know he's got his servants and he brushes down his cloak. He wants. Yeah. He says best to look. You, you've got to look your best in front of the men. Yeah. Whereas um, Chard is you know, in, in the, the river. river. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's uh, down to his you know, knees and elbows in in the water. Yeah. So there's immediate contrast between them, which is good because it's that's the sort of dramatic conflict that gets us to the uh, to the attack. Really, yeah, isn't it? and what's what makes it really interesting is the inverted commas natural order of things is that Bromhead is is the superior. You know, um, yeah. I look down on him. <laughs> <laughs> but when they discuss their army list credentials, so you know when when they, they were, were enlisted, commissioned, yeah. commissioned, that's it. They discover that Chard was commissioned in... Well, first of all, he, says, he asks Bromhead, and he says May 1872. Yeah. And Chard... Um, <laughs> says 1872... Uh, February. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple of months before, which makes him the him superior officer. Yeah, yeah. Despite being an engineer. I think you better get them out of here. Are you giving me an order, old boy? Bromhead. Let's get one thing clear. I'm no line officer, I'm an engineer. I came here to build a bridge. Jolly lucky for you, eh? I mean, otherwise, you would have been chopped with the rest of the column, wouldn't you? All right. What's the date of your commission? Now, don't tell me. I suppose you have seniority. 1872, May. 1872, February. Oh, well. I suppose there are such things as gifted amateurs. If I'm are you questioning my right to command? Oh, not your right, old boy. Never mind. We can cooperate, as they say. And um, actually, historically, Bromhead purchased his commission as an ensign in 1867, and Chard was commissioned in July 1868. Oh. But Bromhead didn't become a lieutenant until 1871. <laughs> So it wasn't a matter of months. Um, Chard became a lieutenant three years before Bromhead. Oh right! So was was not only just the yeah. the uh, superior; he was yeah. definitely superior by by a matter of years, yeah. despite the fact that Bromhead had got into the army yeah. earlier. Oh, it's good. I think it's interesting they do that in the film because it makes it seem as though you know it could have gone either way. Oh, it's a good. I think yeah. it's good. I mean, okay, it's not historically accurate and. And that's the point about a lot of the things in this film. It's interesting knowing what's not historically accurate. And actually, I think it's okay. I know some people probably think it's terrible. Yeah. But it does make it more dramatic. I mean, I don't know. 
what's the this is something that's across many of these war films is um it's myth making is, isn't is it, it is it right to to uh, meddle around with history mm. something like a bridge too far which we talked about was very accurate yeah. I, I think i mean obviously you can't be totally but it was almost like a documentary as we discussed yeah, yeah. Uh, and then you get things like this which definitely goes for the you know good old adventure story yeah a boy's own adventure story rather than the documentary type yeah thing it brings out the drama of the situation rather than being mm. historically accurate yeah so uh, they're trying to build a bridge well well we might as well jump to now so yeah. they know the zulus are coming and yeah. so we've had this discussion about the order of superiority so yeah. who's going to take command the zulus are, are marching on from their victory in sandalwana you know high on their victory yeah. coming towards walks drift we know there's about between three and four thousand zulus yeah walks drift has about 150 men, 140 men, including 30 sick and wounded because it's a hospital. Yeah. Now, they did have 350 men, but the 3rd Natal native contingent abandoned camp. That happens in the film when... De- uh, I keep wanting to call him DeWitt. Yeah. That's... <laughs> but Otto Witt. Yeah. I think at this point, slightly drunk. Yeah. Uh, and comes the... out and says, leave, leave, and he appeals to their... Christian nature. I don't know if they were Christians. They, they possibly had been converted yeah. by all these missionaries. But as far as Wit's concerned, he panics them. Yeah, this is all part of his parish. Yeah. He, he and his daughter turn up saying, "Oh, we're going to take the sick and wounded away." But of course, by this point, Stanley Baker's character Chard is saying, "Well, we're going to need them, even though they're sick." So he yeah. says, "You're not going to do that." Basically, so there's a conflict between the two of them. Um, and I think Witt's character has a role to play here in that because he's so pacifist and also slightly panicking because he's saying you're all going to die. Because the big question is, you know, why are they staying here? They're basically staying here because they've got orders to. Right. You know, they could just run and save their lives, surely, and abandon the place and yeah. send the sick and wounded off with a... Well, I don't know if they would. That, that must be a consideration that if they leave, especially with all the sick and wounded, there's a very good chance that they could be overtaken by... Yeah, I suppose And so. then they'd have nowhere yeah. to defend. They'd yeah. be out in the open or I don't know, and how far away are they from anywhere they could defend. So it's probably the only practical solution. Yeah. But I thought watching the film that Wit, by being so... Not pacifist, but so, you know, the viewer is against him. And so you're yeah. with the soldiers. Yeah. It sort of um, cements your relationship with the soldiers. Right. And the fact mm. that they've got to stay and they've got to put up with this. Yes. Just because he's so... It's basically cowardly. I don't know. I don't, don't really want to say cowardly. No, to, I understand what you mean. But, but once um, he starts drinking and starts saying, you're yeah. all going to die, you're all going to die, it does come across as slightly... Cowardly. Yeah, he loses yeah. any authority he might have yes, had. Any yeah. moral authority he might yeah. have had. Whereas in contrast to him is, um, I think, one of the best best characters in the film, which is Colour Sergeant Bourne. Yes. <laughs> who right, comes across... Lovely boys. He he's, comes a, he's a bit of a Windsor Davis. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's just like a father to all the people below him. You know, yeah. he knows exactly the right tone. He doesn't hector anyone. He just says it, you know. And Historically, I think he was one of the youngest colour yeah. sergeants they had. He was 24 or something. Yes. <laughs> but in yeah. this, he's more like he's sort of, you know, 50. Yeah. <laughs> one of the old hands. and. I did think it was odd he was wearing his medals. Oh, right. Um, which I don't think he would. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know what the medals were. One of them looked like a South African war medal, but... But they was... normally just have the ribbons, you know, the little... Yeah, well, medal. yeah, yeah. Which I guess is... it's an identifier. It gives him some form of authority. It shows he's had experience, which wasn't necessarily historically accurate, but you do get that. Yeah. Uh, as you say, paternal character. Yeah, yeah. But he's good, isn't he? He's played by Nigel Green... 
And he was in Jason the Argonauts, by the way. Uh, yeah, a Harryhausen yeah. film. He played Hercules, and he, later he was in the Ipcris file. Uh, yeah, he's definitely a recognisable face, but I couldn't pinpoint where where he came from. Yeah, probably the Ipcris file is one of his most famous roles. Yeah, I, I think he played Michael Caine's superior. There's, a, there's another character who gets introduced here who I thought, oh, I don't recognise that face, but I couldn't... Which is Private Thomas, played by Neil McCarthy. Right. He's got quite a, a long, sort of heavy-featured face. Who's who's been in a film that we covered in the Adventure Film Podcast, oh, right. which is Time Bandits. Okay, who did he? Who was he? I can't remember. I think he was one of the. He was a bandit. That's it. He's a bandit. Oh, part of I think not one of the Robin Hood's little people. No, no, <laughs> no. Part of Robin Hood's men, I think. Okay. Yeah, you know, but the thing that I, I was looking at him thinking, I suddenly realised where I'd seen him before uh, in a major role, right? In a film which I I, I think hopefully both like. Clash of the Titans. Oh, right, yeah. I can't even picture who you're talking about, to be honest. Calibos. I was going to say Calibos, because I probably wouldn't recognise Yeah, because he's in makeup. Oh, I know who you mean now. He's got a really sort of uh, strong nose. Yes, he's got that sort of... He looks a little bit like... Did he play a Bond villain as well? Because he's got that... I don't know. I didn't look him up, I'm afraid. But, yeah, he's that kind of... um, sort of Either a gentle giant or the henchman. yeah. Um, or obviously, um, yeah, um, a, monster. a monster from Hades. Yeah, <laughs> but in here we see him. He's very much a gentle Welshman. Who's we yeah. see? Um, he's trying to look after a, a calf that's oh, yes, been born. That's yes. right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which isn't just a small detail because that has an impact yeah. Later. Has an impact later. But he's sent out with one of the other soldiers, the um, the head of the choir. <laughs> yes, um, to go and keep a lookout. Yeah, and it's interesting. They're, they're up on this hill of green and you know largely brown, kind of dry, dusty. Grass. These two bright red yeah. British soldiers. <laughs> I just how ridiculous! It's, it's interesting that they were all wearing red yeah. in Africa, whereas in Afghanistan they pretty much all converted to khaki. Oh really? But it was still very early days for khaki. They didn't necessarily all have khaki-made uniforms. They had to dye them with either tea or mud so the british army in afghanistan had everything ranging from dark brown to almost bright yellow depending on how they dyed them (laughs) they were almost responsible themselves for dyeing them or certainly on a regimental level but in africa still that british bright red you know you know we don't have to hide we're british (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah the man he goes up to the hill to watch with is private owen played by ivor emmanuel who, who was a singer rather than actor, and this is his only acting performance. He did have a very nice voice in the yes. film because he gets some singing done, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah. Yes. So the next thing that happens is while um, while Chard is organising... Actually, we've got another character who's Ardendorf, who plays... Is he the boar? The boar, yeah. Yes. He, he acts as the sort of interpreter of what the Zulus are planning. Yes, he knows. You know, I'm, I'm a boar. The Zulus are enemies of my blood. What yes. are you doing here? He <laughs> yeah. So he explains the Zulu tactic of um, the ball, the bull's head, yes, where they they sort of lure you in between the horns, uh, they lure you into the head, mm. the head splits into horns, and surrounds you. In and, a circling, yes, yes. Yeah, so he he he's important for telling us exactly what's going on and yeah. basically telling us that the, this isn't just a, you know an attack by by savages, yeah. but by a highly organised army. You know exactly what mm. they're doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it is interesting actually when he says, "Yeah, I'm a boar. The Zulus only use my blood." And Bromhead says something like, "You know, or you don't mind our our help, I hope." Yeah. And he says, "It depends what you want to do with it afterwards." You know, yeah. In the land, I suppose, because the Boers had their own claim, claim as yeah. well. Of course, I mean, 
you know, going back to why we're in Africa, going back even further, why we're in Africa, yeah. <laughs> South Africa, the Cape of Good Hope, was at the time the route, the British route to India, right? Which is was a major was the jewel in the crown. Yeah, and of course the Boers are of I think Dutch descent, aren't yes, they? Yeah. And the Dutch East India Company also had... A main uh, rival. Yeah, yes. in fact, I think they beat the British there. So there was conflict there. So there was whoever controlled the Cape yeah. also controlled the route to India yeah. at the time because there wasn't the Suez Canal. Yeah, <laughs> um, which then became another knot of um, yeah. imperial yes. dominance and difficulty. Yeah. So that's going that's going way back yeah. to but but it is is kind of the the source I guess I, I mean I don't know if that's the main reason there are other reasons as well just yeah. the British wanted to be everywhere yeah you know look oh there's there's no white people here this must be ours <laughs> yes <laughs> let's see what we can get out of it so some farmers come and um, Chard is really happy but then they say no we're, if we're going to die we're going to die on our own farms and they they go off yes. Um, so we really feel as though... Which is meaning of the word boar, by the way, which is farmer. Oh, right. <laughs> um, so we really feel as though the men are on their own now. And that's when the news comes that thousands of Zulus are spotted. Yes. And it's, it's brilliant the way they're introduced, because they're, they're heard rather than seen. Yes, what does Bromhead say? It's, it's like a train. Yeah. Apparently Bromhead in reality was deaf. Or pretty right. much deaf, so he wouldn't okay. say that. <laughs> this is another one of those um, sort of puncturing facts. <laughs> yeah. of, you know, did anything happen? And this is one of the things about the the Zulus. They use pretty much psychological warfare yeah. uh, as much as... Well, not as much as warfare, but, you know, they stand there not yet taunting. or It's just a display of strength, but it is yeah. truly frightening. <laughs> I mean, even just watching the film, mm. there's a sense of awe that comes from all these voices. Yeah. Very powerful, and the rhythmic thumping of their shields and feet. Echoing around the, the hills, so you probably yeah. feel as though it's all around you. I mean, can you imagine being in this tiny little place yeah. with 150 men surrounded by a few thousand yeah. Zulu MP and... I mean, you do feel it. Yeah, yeah. Now, the short spears they've got, apparently, you know, normally you think of Zulu with an assegai, which mm. is a long spear. Oh, right. So apparently what happened is um, Quechueo saw... I mean, he was invited to Ladysmith, which is where the British yeah. Army had its base, right. and he saw the... Probably, you know, he was invited to watch the British Army training. OK. And he saw them loading up... He saw them training with bayonets. Right. And he realised that his men, if they fought the British would be in close-up combat. And so they developed this spear, basically. Oh, cut. So you know, okay. this shorter spear was developed specifically to fight the British in um, oh, right. bayonet combat. Oh, I you didn't know. know that, right. Yeah, yeah so th- there is a point where they... Um, I don't know if it's before the Zulus actually arrive, where they think that a relief column is coming, so mm. they're all starting to look a bit happier. And this is Durnford's horse, who have, I guess, come from Isanwana, survived and oh, escaped... Right. And Chard says, we need you. And he says, you know, they basically say, no way, we're not staying. Yeah, that's the farmers. Yeah, if we're going to die, we're going to die on our own farms. Right. Yeah. Oh, OK. Yeah. And then uh, Chard starts organising the barricades. So they've got all these um, sacks of, I don't know, grain. Yeah, I think he um, calls them meal sacks. Right, yeah. yeah. yeah so they're great. the things that go out around. They start building them. Yeah, he arranges it so there's not just an outside barrier, but there's an inner redoubt which they can retreat to. Yes, is that the biscuit boxes? Because that's oh, what that's I always. I, that's one fact I I sort of remembered or knew from perhaps even chart boyhood. Yeah. Of reading something about it was that it was defence and all the soldiers were behind biscuit boxes. <laughs> right. But in the film, I think that's only the central 
right yeah. bit so that they they can retreat to that if the if the outer perimeter is breached yeah so we, we get the zulus first attack zulus to the southwest thousands of them yeah. there's a few lines in this that i think oh i remember that that's, <laughs> that's one of them thousands of them they're trailer moments aren't they yes yeah <laughs> yeah so the Zulus attack and they're gunned down, but they they kill some of ours. I was going to say, kill some British. There's an interesting thing at first where the Zulus come in, but they're not really attacking. Yeah. And it turns out what and the British are firing, and it turns out what they're doing is counting the guns. Yeah. Of the British. But one thing about that is that there's enough. The Zulus know they've got enough men to waste some just yes. working out how not waste them, but use them to work out mm. the enemy's weaknesses. Yeah. Whereas Amongst the British, every man counts. You know, they can't afford to waste anyone or sacrifice anyone. Um, so, that, yeah, that's something that um, Ardendorf says. One, after the first Zulu retreat, you know, we killed 60 of them, Bromhead says, and it's like, you know, oh, we must have seen them off. Yeah. Um, and Ardendorf says, no, he's just he's just counting your guns. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, an, there's another good line. I think Wit is drunk, and as he's been shoved off, he's, he's just... He's just um, Sort of panics the Natal native contingent who have, yeah. who have run, so they get they pack him and his daughter off. And as he's going, you're all going to die. And uh, the private says to the color sergeant, hey, "Why us? Why yeah. us?" And yeah. he says, "Because we're here, lad. Yeah, nobody else, just us." <laughs> yeah, it's pretty philosophical. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't is... really answer the why. Yeah, but it's a good answer. <laughs> this fatalistic. And it's also perfectly in character because he's so he does his duty basically, mm. and that's what everyone here is doing their duty. They've been ordered to stay in, and they've got to defend this place. Yeah, it doesn't really matter outside of that why. There's a lot of historical background, but mm. really, it is because they're there, <laughs> yes. I and mean, that is the reason. Yes, <laughs> yes, this this thing of fate. And in fact, I'm just going to jump a bit because just because it is, falls under this topic. As you said, 11 Victoria Crosses were won. Yeah. And a lot of the higher-ups in the army were not happy about this. Oh, really? And resented particularly... Well, any of them getting the VCs, but particularly Chard and Bromhead, who they... You know, several statements were made that they were useless. And, oh, right. You know, didn't deserve it. And, I mean, probably a lot of jealousy. But there is that, that point... The point being, did they deserve the VCs? I think, yes, they did, undoubtedly, mm. um, if, you know, uh, under that system. But they had no choice. <laughs> they didn't do... They didn't put their lives... Go out of their... Like, for instance, other VCs were earned quite often for someone rescuing another soldier. Right. So you'd be perhaps running from the enemy. You'd see one of your... You know, so you'd go back to. You'd go enemy. back, risk your life to rescue <laughs> someone. Or, mm. like in the First World War, some British Tommy would single-handedly take you know, 11 German prisoners and, and a machine gun. Yeah. <laughs> this was different. They had no choice but mm. to stay there. They could have been complete cowards. But, of course, what do you do? You fight. Yeah. yeah. And so there was resentment about the VCs. So, <laughs> so that line of you know because we're here, yeah, is is just a, it's the circumstances you're in. Yeah, and I think that's very interesting. Of course, it was an unfortunate situation to be in in the first place, anyway. So yes, so there's a second wave attack, isn't there? Yeah. Now, apparently, in in the actual in the historical situation. <laughs> Um, the Zulus got into the compound six times. Oh, right. Yeah, which yeah. I think is more... But more than 
quite a few of them happened at night, and of course they didn't. Yes, there's not much night coverage in this. No, it's sort of one <clears throat> night scene mm-hmm. where not much. Anyway, with the second wave, we discover, although we knew it earlier, I think that the Zulus have guns, which they took from the yeah. British soldiers at Sambalwana. That's a brilliant moment when you see a Zulu. <clears throat> I think he, you know, it just he drops his shield and he's holding up yeah. a rifle. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why. It's just so. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they had them anyway, but. They, you did see them take them yeah. at the beginning. You see the aftermath of Isanda yeah, and they're yeah. taking, they're raiding the he bodies. The rifle, yeah. And the Zulus get right up to the perimeter, and you see this hand-to-hand fighting, mm. which I got to admit I didn't feel. This is maybe because it's an older film. It seemed very choreographed, the hand-to-hand fighting, and yeah. you you could plainly see, with the exception of a few direct stabs in, into obviously some kind of <clears throat> cardboard box in in the. Yeah, those were quite good, but there were quite a few just stabs to empty, empty air, or just touching the body, and it was kind of obvious. Well, this is one thing they said in the, in the commentary: is for instance, they didn't leave loads of bodies lying around because they didn't want it to look like a bloodbath. Right. And the uh, you know they were saying that, the, and basically, it wasn't done at the time to do lots of blood and guts. Mm, yeah, although there was, it yeah. was quite bloody. Yeah. Uh, and it's not until the very end of the film that there's lots of dead bodies yeah. obviously lying there. Yeah. So obviously they, I mean, in reality, it would have been a complete butcher's shop. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the their aim, even though it was. But it's still it's pretty desperate. I mean, you mm. do get a sense of, you know, I mean, how can they even survive this as they're coming over? But the, there's other bits. It just doesn't seem very desperate. I and mean, the situation is desperate. Certainly, I did feel yeah. tension. But the individual little fights, you'd quite often get sold. It just looked a bit too casual in some ways. Yeah. Now, that's a horrible criticism because... um, Okay, so... And then there's a third wave of attack. You know, they they draw back. There's a third wave. And Chard, who who I think was injured in the second wave and has been into the surgeon and come out again and, and kind of rallies himself. Yeah. And forms lines out of his British soldiers. So they do the volleys, you know, yeah. where... One line kneels down and fires, and then as they're reloading, the line behind fires, and they move forward. And that really shows you the British tactics yeah. coming into play and how successful they are. Yeah, and There's quite a good moment before that where Charge, injured, um, says to Bromhead, you're the professional, take command. Yeah. But Bromhead says, no, we need you. So right. it's like he's, he's acknowledging the fact that he thinks Bromhead is the the better man to be in charge. Yes. Or is at least, you know, he's he's doing a good job. And of course at the end we learn, certainly in the film version, that this is Bromhead's first action. Mm. And then I think we also learn that it's Charles' yes, first action. Yeah. yeah, that's the point, yeah. Um, I, I think historically I'm not sure I think Bromhead had been in action oh, right. before. And there's one point which I think is like a bit too much on the message, which is in the in the surgery, Patrick McGee, you know, who's the surgeon, yeah. is operating on this man who sits up and goes, why, why? <laughs> <laughs> I'm damned if I can tell you why. Yeah. Patrick McGee, I found out, is Samuel Beckett's favourite actor, apparently. Oh, OK. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, he's stuck in the church. I don't know, was there a chapel there? I guess there probably was. But... Well, it was, a, it was a mission, wasn't it? Yeah. Whereas I think in reality, he was very much outside, going around people, seeing to them. Um, and he won one of the VCs, which makes more sense. Yeah. If he's outside, you know, under fire and, yeah. and the threat of death, whereas if he's in the church, isn't. Well, I guess he still produced sterling work. Yeah. <laughs> well done, old chap. Yeah, the Zulus get onto the roof yes, of yeah. the hospital, which is thatch. And uh, they dig their spears in and get down yeah. into the building. And all, but also a fire starts yeah. on the roof. And yeah. that's. 
obviously devastating for the hospital and the people in it because yeah. the whole thing catches. There's two facts I learned about the actual events. Right. One is that uh, most of the wounds to the British were gun wounds, you know, bullet wounds, mm. rather than a spear wounds. Oh, OK. And the other is that most of the ca- uh, fatalities occurred in the hospital. Oh, right. Because, of course, there no one could run. Yeah. Oh, I mean, not the people were running, but, I mean, you know, they were sitting ducks, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, God, right. And this is where Hook has been shown to be a shirker mm. and a insubordinate and, you know, um, not at all... Doesn't follow orders. Doesn't yeah. follow orders, yeah. He gets his turnaround. Yes, yeah. He's... He's, uh, even, even during the battle, he's still... He's not firing. No. Until another private says, would you, you know, would you join us? <laughs> well, as you ask, you know, yeah. he, he doesn't want to follow orders, but right. he, he's sort of like, he's waiting for an excuse to yeah. not follow orders, but still join him. Right, yes, yeah, that's good. <laughs> yeah. But he, he um, even his hated... Uh, I don't private know Maxfield. Is, so, Sergeant Maxfield. Sergeant, yeah, yeah. Who's quite wounded. He's in uh, fever. He, yeah. he rescues him, yeah. although he doesn't make it. Yeah. And it was quite funny. As he, he's dying, he says, I've made a soldier of you at last. He's <laughs> laughing. Yeah. But yeah, Hook does quite a lot in there to help get everyone out. Yeah. He takes a swig of, uh, yeah. smashes the medicine cabinet and takes a swig of uh, medicinal brandy or whatever yeah. it is. <laughs> On the way out. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the things his family didn't like because they claim he was a teetotaler. Oh, right. But I think even a teetotaler, perhaps, in that situation, <laughs> might not be able to resist a... Cause he, he's, not, it's, it's not like he was, like, the missionary yeah, who had his yeah. secret stash of brandy. He just needed a quick... Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think it necessarily showed him as a drunkard of any kind. No, no. Although, in the film, he was he was given 28 days... Without pay. Yeah. yeah. You know, field, I don't know if it was field punishment or something. Yeah, Maxfield called him a thief, so I wonder if, you know, maybe... Right, so know. he probably wasn't drunk in this. Mm. Um, yeah, but I, I, I mean, his family said, I think, that he was an exemplary soldier. And, yeah. and one of the others who was seen in the film as an exemplary soldier was actually... Had, really? had a pretty bad... Record. Uh, yeah, conduct record. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's quite an, uh, an amazing action sequence, the whole uh, hospital burning down. Yes, it is, Breaking yeah. through walls in no, the that, that is that really yeah. wraps up the tension, and I did feel that was a lot more... Uh, visceral and realistic and yeah yeah edge of your seat stuff and of because they're coming in through the doors and through the roof yeah and there's fire yeah and they're as you say they're in this enclosed space now what actually happened of course in the the actual event is the hospital burnt down but it meant that during the night attacks because the hospital was still burning they actually had illumination to see ah. the enemy so actually it helped i mean right. not in a great way but um, yeah so they so the zulus couldn't creep up on them. Yeah, because, so, right, night, so that, they basically had a light <laughs> to yes. see the attacks. Um, but the thing that stops this uh, wave of attacks is um, something that was set up earlier when um, my Calibos actor <laughs> went to check on his calf who was dead and he didn't fully close the gate. Yeah, that's right, yeah. And so after a retreat to the inner redoubt, the Zulus are advancing and then the cattle get loose. Yeah. And this causes a, a Zulu Just retreat. that the Zulus can't... A, can't get to the perimeter to attack, and B, they're trampled. Yes, yeah. Do you know if that was a real event? Or... I think... Oh, I've, I've actually got a note. didn't actually take place. I thought it <laughs> may not have. Yeah. But that was very good as well, because the way it was filmed, they put a camera mm. down on the ground, and you it was really quite... You felt as though you were being mm, trampled. Yeah. And I did... I mean, probably very good editing, but there seems to be a couple of Zulu yeah. warriors down there. Yeah. One of them got gored yeah. by one of the um, cattle with its horns and others got trampled. I mean, you can see a problem for the filmmakers was making each Zulu attack different. Yes. And why did it end? Because, you know, why do they end? They were just called back. You yeah. had to make it 
decisive and interesting. Yeah, that's true. So we do see a knight, and that that's the following day, yeah. I think, isn't it? And oh no, 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 that's before. Yeah. The so night. then we have knight with the fire still raging, and we see only a few brief attacks, but I think it was probably just as bad during the night. And in dawn, the Zulus chant and sing this almost like right. This is the big attack. Yeah. Coming, and that's when the soldiers sing "Men of Harlech" in, yeah. in response. It's not like a battle of singing, and you think, "Why, why can't all wars be resolved <laughs> yeah. just by singing?" <laughs> yes, yes. The um, right. Um, instead of going into Iraq, we're going to have an X Factor. <laughs> um, yeah, Private Owen's asked, you know, what do you think of their singing? He says, "Well, they've got a, a good, very good bass section, but no top ones." <laughs> <laughs> and "Men of Harlech" is a song about a siege. Right. Um, in 1461 at Harlech uh, Castle. Yeah. So it's quite uh, quite relevant to this. <laughs> I've just drawn Harlech Castle oh, for, for a job, yes. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, so the Zulus do their chanting and then there's one final attack. Yes. So we see all, all of the British, they're asleep at their posts and they're woken up and they're, the Zulus chant, they attack. Chard gets the bugler to blow for the retreat behind the redoubt. Yeah. Now something that's said on the commentary is that the bloke on the commentary, who was the, the, the director of the second unit, yes. three times said, oh no, this scene was based on an actual illustration from the London Illustrated News. And I wasn't, I could, uh, afterwards I couldn't be sure which one he meant, but I think he meant this one, which is a shot of three ranks of British soldiers, you know, kneeling, standing, and behind the redoubt wall, firing right. um, against the, the, you know, the final Zulu attack. Yes. Which was a real... I mean, it's almost like these visions of the machine guns. Yeah. Uh, which I think the Maxim... Was it Maxim machine guns? Who I know were first used in the Afghan war. Actually, probably not their first use, but very early use. Yeah. Uh, and I think were also used... Uh, had an early use in the South African war. But they weren't very reliable. Yeah. Um, although they were deadly machines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you could spray bullets and just... Obviously, indigenous peoples of these countries didn't stand a chance. Mm. Except... That they'd lock <laughs> oh, right. and misfire, and you couldn't get them working. Yeah. But here again, we've got the three line volley. <clears throat> yeah. It just shows the devastation because the Zulus just can't get through, can't get close enough, and this is where the bodies pile up and yeah, pile up. And yeah. it's, 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 quite, it's quite a harrowing yeah, scene, actually, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So, yeah, so they retreat, and there's a feeling then that they've won, that the British have won. Yeah. Is it this bit where they say the Zulus have gone, all of them, and. Yeah, someone says it's a miracle. And then is it the colour sergeant who says, I don't debate it, sir, with some guts behind it. Which yeah. I think is another famous line. I think there may have been a book about the about Rourke's Drift called some guts. With Some Guts Behind It. Yeah, I think it was about the making of this film, actually. Oh, OK. Um, yeah, it's... Um, colour sergeant Bourne says it was a miracle. It's a miracle. Yeah. Um, Chard says, oh, it's... I uh, can't remember the exact words, but he says it's basically a miracle based on the rifle. Right, uh, you know, it's a 16 calibre, blah, 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 right. miracle. Martini and then, Henry. And then um, uh, Bourne says, and a bayonet, so it's got some guts behind it. Yeah, he's a traditionalist. <laughs> yeah. So I think also this is sort of answering Wit earlier, who's, you know, saying the power of God would go through him. And, you know, right. um, oh, saying, I see. It, you know, it's not a miracle, it's down to, um, you know, actual people fighting yes yes <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, a rationalist yeah oh, how nice <laughs> and then we get a discussion between chard and bromhead for basically how they feel after this is you know like beforehand of course bromhead was totally self-possessed and yeah he felt he knew you know, there's nothing that he, he, yeah, he his, his breeding would see yeah through. <laughs> war was in his blood but now he's actually had some action the character not necessarily the historical person but he says you know i feel ashamed 
Well? You fought your first action. Does everyone feel like this afterwards? How do you feel? Sick. Well, you have to be alive to feel sick. If you asked me, I told you. There's something else. I feel ashamed. Was that how it was for you? The first time? The first time? I think I could stand this butcher's yard more than once. I didn't know. I told you. I came up here to build a bridge. There's a scene where they do a roll call of the men. The yeah. colour sergeant Bourne does a roll call, which is quite moving. And I think you see he keeps his composure, yeah. but you can see his swallows it's and perhaps even a little bit of moisture in his eyes. It's yeah. so subtle, but that's probably one of the most emotional bits in the film. Because yeah. you know that some names he know are dead, Yeah. some he's, he's hoping aren't dead. It's just an alphabetical yeah. list. Yeah, And there's the moments casualty. of humour, like he says, Hitch... Hitch, I know you're not dead. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. They're the actual names as well, apparently. All of the names he calls yeah. out are actual names. Yeah. You know, this is historical, but mm. transpose it to today, you know, with the same things happening. These names are actual people, you know, with families back home. And yeah, it's this is people who've been killed mm. for a stupid war, mm. obviously. And then there's a brilliant ending where oh, yeah, yeah. the Zulus reappear. And particularly Michael Caine's character, I think he's just going, oh my God, you know. Because they're happy that yeah, they've gone, they've made they think, it, survived, yeah, and then. Yeah, and they know there's still these thousands. lines yeah. appear again. Um, and so, but the Zulus start chanting, and this is um, the boar. Michael Caine's character says they're, they're taunting us. Mm. Ardendorf says, no, they're saluting fellow brave. Yeah. Which apparently didn't happen. No. <laughs> apparently the Zulus did come back, and they were seen coming back, but they were just trying to get a look at the uh, relief column which was turning up <laughs> right okay so um, yeah which is why they ultimately they left yeah um so again it goes back to that question of the victoria crosses and how worthy yeah. they are certainly in other people's eyes saying well you know the only reason they left was because the relief which is possibly true yeah but they how, survived how that long ways? they yeah. did yes exactly yeah. Yeah, 10 hours of fighting I think, yeah which is incredible 150 men against what four three or four thousand yeah but I think this is what the film is about, really. It's not mm. about the political situation. No. It's about soldiers being caught in... You know, they don't know why. They're just... Yeah. They're there. That's why they're exactly. fighting. Exactly, which is said, yeah. both sides that we see here, we don't really see the people in charge. No. You know, it's Braves... As he says, it's Braves saluting fellow Braves. Mm. You know, that's what this is about. And, as we said, 11 VCs were won. I read that someone said there was there was no other action like it. Mm. And I've always thought that's a bit unfair, although it's possibly true. Being an Afghan war, I'm going to say advocate, which is not <laughs> <laughs> not not a, a great phrase. There's a an action in the Afghan war that happened two months after Rourke's Drift, which hardly anyone, you know, no one really knows about. But I've always been fascinated by it for a number of reasons. But one of them is its similarity to Rourke's Drift. And it was in April 1879, and it was called Kamdaka the action of Kamdaka, where a British officer and his uh, Mirawa battalion of Indian native soldiers mm. uh, and some British, I think, of the 12th foot or something, went out to a, a small village um, on the Kabul River to 
find out what was happening. There'd been some incursions by some Moman tribesmen. And anyway, the villagers who they thought were friendly turned out not to be. Mm. Captain O'More Creer, I think his name was, who's a fascinating person. I actually read his autobiography. And he's a really nice bloke. <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think he's very admirable because he treated his Indian soldiers... Uh, he was friends with them. Yeah. And they respected him. Whereas their, he wasn't their actual commander. He was something like second in command. Mm. Their actual commander treated the Indians like complete inferiors, like mm. many of the officers did, unfortunately, and was off hunting, leaving <laughs> Korea, or went off to find some, some more... I can't remember the details now. He was either... He was away from his... Because he didn't really like staying with the soldiers. <laughs> and I think he got himself moved away from the battalion to find some slightly more glorious action. Oh, right. As it turned out, Omar Korea had the glorious action, in inverted quotes. So the the villagers attacked them. And him and his 100 men, yeah. some British, some majority Indian, I think, retreated to the cemetery just outside the village. And it was that that was the, this is the main difference. In in Rorkstrift there were three or four thousand Zulus. Yeah. In this one I think there were about a thousand Afghan tribesmen still. Yeah. <laughs> but they kept them at bay at this cemetery. Yeah. Not, they didn't have a wall or anything. And I think so Kamdaka, about hundred and fifty men, they the British lost six dead, three Indian troops, the three uh, British yeah. troops and the Afghans 200, until eventually a relief column arrived with some cannon and was able to beat the, yeah, the Afghan similar. soldiers off. But right. it, it's very similar, mm. yet completely not mm. in history. And part of the reason for that, I think... Uh, Omar Korea did get the VC. Oh, right. Uh, so. He was the only, only one VC, not 11. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, it wasn't as... I think Rock's Drift was perhaps a more desperate just because of the numbers and perhaps yeah. the situation they were defending a british post but i think a very interesting political point is that before rock's drift there was this sandalwana a yes, huge yeah. british defeat um an embarrassment for the yeah. british especially seeing as bartle freer had gone in without the authority mm. of his government or queen and you need after something like that happens which didn't happen very often with the British, but it did happen a few times. You need something for the newspapers back home to say, no, look, we're British. Yeah. <laughs> look at these few men. Look what we did. Yeah, yeah. And that happened in Afghanistan as well, because you had the disaster in that war was Maiwand in July. Was it July? Yes, end of July, 1880, where thousands of Afghans almost wiped out a British uh, mm. column that was out in the desert and retreated ignominiously back to Kandahar. Yeah. And you had... In the aftermath of that, you had General Roberts marched 10,000 men from Kabul down to Kandahar in record time, 300 miles yeah. or so, and defeated Ayub Khan mm-hmm. at Kandahar in a glorious victory. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing that's remembered, the famous thing, oh, well, well, no, actually, at the time, the famous thing was the march. And in fact, they even made a medal for the march, which led to resentment from other soldiers he said, well, I've been in Afghanistan for two years, marching, you know, my <laughs> boots have been worn out, I've been shot at, I've, you know, had Afghan tribesmen come into my tent and try to slit my throat, and, and they get this special medal for, yeah. you know, marching. And it was, it was um, quite a an operation, yeah. although the war was almost over, so they didn't have much. But the point is, that was played up, yeah. and my one was played down. Sandalwana was played down, Rorkstrift was played up. Yeah. Give the VCs to kind of, you know, blind everyone to the disaster that's just <laughs> yeah. happened with all the 
you know the the shiny metal um, yeah. medals. Um, although actually now the most the thing that most people know about the Afghan War or most people are interested in is my wand. Yeah, that's if you know there's a couple of books, one of which I was involved in, which have been written about my wand specifically, and that's the British disaster. And people are interested in disasters. And there was a follow up to Zulu called a film called Zulu Dawn. Yeah. Uh, which was made 100 years to the year in 1979, 1979, um, which was written by... Cyan Films. Yes. Yeah. He, yeah, wrote, so... he wrote the book and the script. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it was a prequel, of course, because it's about this underwana. Oh, right. And I really like that film. In fact, when I first saw it, I thought, this is better than Zulu. Oh. But I think... I don't know if it is dramatically. Yeah. It is a very good film. It's got it's got quite a cast in it, and you you do very much see the commanders in that one. Right. Um, but it's much more technically accurate, perhaps. Oh, right. And so, if, if you're interested in military history, mm. I think that's got a lot going for it. It's probably you know some South African Zulu War expert will, will probably yeah. say it's completely fictitious. <laughs> but I quite I did I haven't seen it for a while. I might watch it again. Yeah. soon just to have another check of it but yeah. i i was quite impressed by that perhaps i was too familiar with zulu and this was new right yeah um but looking at zulu again recently for this podcast it does stand the test of time i think mm. and obviously it's an historical film yeah. so it, it doesn't date yes uh, it's yeah. not a contemporary film that dates through fashion and yeah. special effects necessarily although i, I did yeah. criticize the special effects earlier <laughs> but as a, a dramatic piece mm. of art yeah. it's relevant very relevant and it's good yeah. it's a good film yeah. it's it's, it's uh, it is a classic deservedly yeah. so isn't it i think this is of all the films we've seen so far this one really shows you the sort of small details because um, the things that matter here are things like getting bullets to people yes. there's a scene where two two injured men dragging around a box of bullets giving them out because you need to do that yeah Whereas all the other ones have been about big things, bombs, blowing up bridges. Yeah. But here you really get a feeling that each man matters and each tactical decision matters. Yes. So it's a good, yeah. good from that point of view. Yeah. I think the rest of the Zulu War played out with... I mean, actually, I think Chelmsford, who was the general, actually out in the field, mm. uh, retreated from Zululand and then went back in for... A, I don't know if you'd call it a second campaign, but it had yeah. to go back in again and of course the British eventually won I think there was the Battle of Alundi and that finished off the Zulu yeah. independence certainly mm. was it then the Boer War <laughs> well the no the Boer War was 1899 I don't know if it was 1898 oh, so it was right at the turn of the century I mean obviously all these wars there's no yeah. isolated war uh, in fact, the Boer War of 1900, whatever it was, I can't remember, 1899, yeah. 8, yeah. 9 to 1902, was the second Boer War. Oh, right. And there was a Boer War, I think it was the 1870s, so not long before the Zulu War. Oh, right. Actually, no, maybe that, no, the first <clears throat> Boer War might have been 1881, actually. <laughs> oh, my history is terrible. It's somewhere around there. <laughs> it's better than mine. Well, <laughs> Afghan War, ask me anything. <laughs> anything else? Uh, yeah, the first Boer War might have been 1881. Right. Um, there was certainly some yeah. South African war then. So basically, it wasn't a decided conflict, it just, like the Middle no, East, I mean, on and on. That's the thing. Why was the second Boer War, now I don't know much about the second Boer War, but it's attached. There's a string attached to that point in time that goes back, and you pull yeah. it, and that thread is linked to. It's wound around all kinds of historical events. Yeah. So you wouldn't have had that Boer War if you hadn't had this. I mean, obviously the tension with the Boers goes back to the you know when the British came to 
the cape in the 1790s or whenever it was. Yeah. Again, sorry, probably got yeah. a date wrong. And the Zulus, and of course we get all the indigenous peoples of South Africa to yeah. to become British <laughs> subjects. subjects and soldiers and a lot of resentment. I mean, it's just storing up trouble. I mean, the Afghan war in 2001, 2002, whenever it was, till... Has it finished? Yeah. Till now, it's still the Taliban are certainly making a comeback. Obviously, that was um, instigated by the 2001 attacks in New York. Yeah. But the Afghan part of it, they see it as still connected to the, you know, the possibly the war in 1919, definitely the war in 1878, <laughs> and, and even perhaps more so the first one, which was the 1840s. Right. Yeah, they don't forget these yeah. things because they're big events in their history mm. whereas for us the british we've been planting ourselves all over the world since you know yeah. goodness knows when the 1400s or whenever it was yeah. and uh so it's just another mm. thing but to mm. these people oh, it's their home it, isn't it, it makes a massive difference yeah. yeah so so when when the afghans fight they're remembering those reasons they're very mm. strong for them yeah. and we we this is where you say you don't learn from history. Yeah. The Afghan war has been fought four times. The the Anglo-Afghan war has been fought four times, pretty much for the same reason each time and with the same effect almost. Every time. It's it's quite stunning. Anyway. Yeah, I don't know much about the history of South Africa, but uh, certainly this is a, a very small part of it that is very interesting and fascinating and, and has had, as we said, books written about it. Mm. The film, which I don't know... If this is an interesting thing, actually. Would Rourke's Drift be a forgotten, a almost forgotten historical event if it hadn't been for the film? Mm, it's yeah. possible. It certainly it's, sparked but, interest in it. I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Nearly everyone I know who's interested in the Zulu War is through the film Zulu. Yeah. And that's how they get into then the historical yeah. truth of it and become obsessed. You know? yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so our next film is The Eagle Has Landed. Michael Caine again. Back to the Second World War. He's playing a Nazi this time. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. It's it's um, a bit of fiction, but uh, I think it's going to be very interesting, perhaps be a bit more solid ground, <laughs> because <laughs> purely because we don't have to check it so much with historical facts, although yeah. there are historical yeah. allusions, and it, it's very interesting. For that. Yeah. So thank you very much for listening to the War Films podcast part six, and hopefully it won't be too long before we get part seven going, and we'll see you then. Yes.